Yeah. So, what is this about? Dialogical Vaishnavism. Hmm. Dialogical. How would you... It's, it's not diabolical. It's dialogical. <laughs> uh, how would we translate dialogical in, in Slovenian? Huh? Just dialogue. Okay, but it's dialogiski. Vaishnavismo or something. Right? <laughs> Dialoshki. Okay. All right. Um, it'd be nice if I didn't have to turn my head so much. Maybe I can just do this. Ah, we're going to get more comfort. Thank you. Perfect. Okay. Ah, what would we do without all these comforts and machines? All right. Mm, so, dialogical? I thought we are practicing bhakti yoga. Yeah, so it's just a kind of funny joke. The somebody on the television is telling the somebody who's trying to practice yoga, first, clear your mind. Uh-huh, okay, so he's clearing his mind, and he's meditating on his toes, and he's thinking, ooh, I have really ugly toes, actually. So anyway... This is not really what dialogical is about. Dialogical. First, let's look at a couple of images. Uh, this is a banyan tree. Um, this might be the banyan tree south of Chennai. Um, there's something special about banyan trees, I think. The way um, they are so... So multiplex, there's so much in one tree, so to say. Um, and we could, of course, emphasize this point, that although we see this multiplicity, actually there's a unity. There is, this is one tree, presumably, just with many, many branches and, of course, uh, the roots that go down and go up. Krishna talks about this in the Bhagavad Gita, but that's another topic. I just wanted to give this image as a way of thinking about dialogue. And this image also, um, again, trees, this time many trees, uh, and sometimes we've all had this experience. You can look up at the tall trees and uh, see how they all seem to sort of converge. And, uh, and I think that's an interesting image for um, what we want to consider, dialogue. But there's another sort of idea, and that's the idea of a bridge. Um, I've crossed this particular bridge, 
a fair number of times in my youth. <laughs> this is the so-called Golden Gate Bridge uh, that connects San Francisco with San Rafael. Um, but I think it's an interesting photo because of the fog on one end. It's a lot of fog in San Francisco. But the idea of <clears throat> connecting, that's what bridges do. Uh, we connect, we go from one side of the bridge to the other side, and perhaps eventually we come back on the same bridge. And we could say that uh, this is also an image of communication, um, although you could argue that the analogy is limited because I may be going one direction in a car and others may be going in the opposite direction in a car and there's no communication between us. <laughs> so there's some limit to the idea. Another bridge, um, different style and uh, hmm, one might have a different sort of feeling while walking on this bridge, uh, a rope bridge, which may not be all so stable. Um, one might have a, a feeling of wanting to be quite alert when crossing this bridge. Um, in any case, the idea of crossing bridge, uh, connecting, communicating, and communicating going in two directions, not in one direction. Okay, now, the, the, the main focus that I've had in these seminars in talking about dialogue is uh, communication with persons of, uh, of various faiths, of various religious traditions. Sometimes this is called uh, interfaith dialogue. <laughs> Sometimes it's called interreligious dialogue. Um, there's a history to uh, this whole subject of interfaith and interreligious dialogue in terms of organizational uh, practice and so on. Uh, and there's lots, lots and lots of, um, lots of thinkers have written about it, um, considering it from all different angles. But the point here is just, it, it's, off, it's very much about considering different religions, different religious traditions. So here's a little chart, um, just to get us thinking uh, about the situation in the world today with respect to difference of religious groups. Um, taking the world as a whole, this is roughly the percentages we see. Uh, we have Christians of all different varieties, and there's so many different varieties of Christians. 32% uh, and then 
come Muslims. Also, there are several varieties, although uh, two main ones, 23%. Uh, next comes unaffiliated. Uh, it says 16%. I mean, these percentages and this way of calculating, I'm sure one could... Uh, find counter-examples and find other kinds of statistics. Statistics are always a problem. Hindus, so-called Hindus, 15%. Buddhists, 7%. Folk religions, 6%. Other religions, 0.8%. And Jews, 0.2%. On another chart, not this one, another chart, uh, it showed also atheists, two <laughs> percent. Uh, I wonder what it would be here in Slovenia. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Okay. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we could probably find charts for Slovenia as well. Okay, um, so that's just getting us thinking about, mm, about religions in some way. There's hundreds of ways to think about religions, talk about. But uh, I've, I've come with these questions for, oh, look at that, for uh, those who would like to practice Krishna consciousness, how can our own spiritual lives and devotional experience of Krishna consciousness be enriched through open engagement with people of faith in other traditions? Now, for some of us, some of us this may seem like a very strange sort of question. Uh, why would we want to engage, why would we want to have open engagement, and what is that? And how could it possibly be enriching? We have everything in our tradition, we have all the riches. We might feel like that. And there could be good reasons, and one could make an argument for that. Still, I want to raise this question. How can our spiritual lives and devotional experience of Krishna consciousness, or bhakti, be enriched through open engagement with people of faith in other traditions? Persons who identify themselves um, with one or another of these traditions we saw on the pie chart. Of course, we could then say, well, these are all superficial identifications. We are not this body. We are not Hindu. We are not Christian. We are not Muslim. We are not Buddhist, right? This is, we understand uh, th this point. But um, if you just tell someone that, someone says, I'm a Christian, and you say, no, you're not, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> that may not be a good opener for communication. <laughs> right? 
Okay, next question. How can we share Krishna consciousness with others in ways that are value-adding for persons of faith, thus pursuing genuine friendship and cooperation for fostering spiritual uplift of all? Now notice this question the key word is share, but notice the uh, there's no reference here to conversion. There's no idea here that we're going to make everybody a Hare Krishna. No. I think if we're a little realistic, <laughs> we may uh, recognize that uh, probably the vast majority of people in the world, uh, whatever a Hare Krishna devotee's good intentions might be, uh, they're going to keep their, their own traditions, their own faith. And for many of these people, uh, their faith is possibly deeper than you or I may appreciate. Hmm, something to think about. Okay, uh, so those are a couple of questions. I have more questions. Do you want to hear more questions? All right, here we go. Hmm, this is a question that I especially feel is important for devotees uh, who identify as Krishna bhaktas in our particular institution, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. How can we foster a culture of dialogue in ISKCON? Uh, the implication of this question is that we don't have very much of a culture of dialogue. <laughs> um, some places we have some culture. We have some devotees who have been very much engaged in, uh, in, in dialogue, formal, informal, on various, in various ways, various levels. Okay, um, now we might still want to, whoops, we may want to get a definition of dialogue. Uh, we all kind of think we know what that is, but here are a couple from William Isaac's Dialogue and the Art of Thinking Together. One definition, a conversation in which people think together in relationship. Hmm, interesting sort of a definition. Thinking together? <laughs> what does that mean? Hmm? Thinking together in relationship. And it's a conversation. His, he says also, a way of taking the energy of our differences and channeling it towards something that has never been created before. 
<laughs> so notice uh, the energy of our differences. So one thing to notice there is it's acknowledging difference and it's accepting difference. People think differently. Have you noticed? <laughs> Even in this room, have you noticed? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, all right, so we think differently. Great, what to do about it? Let's see if we can make the energy of that difference uh, sort of somehow come together and out of that energy, something new can come. Is it possible? Is it possible? And of course, the question can then come, is it worthwhile? Is it something I want to do or something we want to do? All right, then, um, what about in our tradition? By our tradition, I mean the Vaishnava tradition. All right, we have a term in Sanskrit, sambada, which can be translated as simply discussion together, or can mean a comprehensive discussion. Like we have the word sankirtana. Kirtana can mean praise, glorification, can also just mean description, and some can mean together, or it can mean complete, complete uh, glorification, samkirtan, so samvada. And the Bhagavad Gita, <clears throat> excuse me, each of the chapters of Bhagavad Gita are referred to traditionally as samvada. Uh, they're all uh, discussions or conversations of, between Krishna and Arjuna. In the Bhagavad Gita, we have a famous verse. Machitta matkata prana bodhayanta parasparam katayantashamam nityam tushyanticha ramanticha. Mm. Here, bodhayanta parasparam is especially interesting. Um, <clears throat> parasparam means back and forth or with each other. It's kind of a neat Sanskrit word, kind of sounds like what it means, parasparam. And bodhayantaha means enlivening, literally it means awakening. Jeev jago, jeev jago, wake up, wake up. So, uh, so Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita is suggesting that, uh, well, he puts it in the context of discussing about him, matchitta, those whose chit, those whose consciousness is me, <laughs> those who are absorbed in thoughts of Krishna, Matkata prana, whose lives have gone to to God, who are dedicated, who are um, yeah absorbed in God consciousness. Bodhayanta paras, katayantaschamam nityam, they engage in discussion nityam all the time, and what's the result? Tushyanti, they become 
very satisfied. They become very satisfied. <clears throat> if we go to Chaitanya Charitamrita, uh, we have there the description of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, his very dramatic life, and one very dramatic moment is um, his meeting with the Kaji uh, of the area of Navadip, and they have a discussion. The discussion is how Krishna Das Kaviraj describes, not really exactly in the style of what um, modern uh, interfaith dialogue would look like, but it is a kind of a dialogue. Uh, they talk with each other, they listen to each other, and, uh, well, in the, in the end, it's not that the Kazi converts and becomes a Hare Krishna. But what he does do is he says, okay, not only am I going to permit your Sankirtan to go on publicly, but I'm going to order all of my descendants to follow this order, that uh, it will always, that Sankirtan will always be permitted. Hmm. So that's a kind of, kind of dialogue. Or, what do you think? No? <laughs> then we come to later times. We come to Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur from the late 19th century who uh, liked to use this expression, Saragrahi Vaishnava. He envisioned uh, a person who is spiritually advanced in such a way as to appreciate the sara, the essence, the substance, the marma we had in the song. Mar marma means heart. It can also mean substance or essence. Someone who can appreciate uh, essence or substance wherever it is, with whomever it is, and I think that's also kind of a message of the Radharaman song. <laughs> Whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you live, whatever you do, uh, whatever is your dharma, whatever is your karma, whatever is your marma, <laughs> just chant Radharaman. <laughs> uh, grahi uh, is one who can grasp, is able to to, to comprehend. Now, I want to expand a little on Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Uh, he says some interesting things. And he, he wrote about this because, as I mentioned, late 19th century. So there's a history here. Uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur was very much exposed to a lot of ideas that were coming, uh, especially from the West uh, in the late 19th century, especially because of the Brit British presence. Um, and there were also quite active uh, 
preachers of Christianity, mainly Protestants. Um, and um, so he was encountering, and he was, he was reading Western literature. He was reading the Bible. Um, and he was also reading uh, various modern uh, English writers. So in his book, Chaitanya Shikshamrita, I think this is a nice example of what uh, may be called open engagement. So practically in the beginning of this book, uh, Chaitanya Shikshamrita, the nectar of the teachings of Lord Chaitanya. So he's starting out his book um, with a sort of very broad foundation. He says, let's, let's consider religion in a very sort of broad-minded way. And there he identifies five types of diversity, five differences, five sorts of difference among different religions. So there's, we can say, well, there's, yeah, the different, okay, there's Christianity, Islam, Buddhist, Hindu, etc., etc. But there's different ways of understanding difference. <laughs> And he suggests five. There's difference in teachers and prophets, is the first. Then uh, difference in mentality and expression of reverence by the worshipers. Okay. Um, I'm going quickly. We could, I'm sure, think of examples for all of these. There's difference in procedures of worship. Notice in the last two, he's saying there's something in common. There's worshipers and there's worship. Talking about religion, that means there's going to be some worship going on, some kind of worship. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know if Zen Buddhists would say they do worship. Maybe not. Uh, in any case, difference in procedures of worship, then... Uh, difference in conceptions of God. Now here, you may say, hold on, hold on. Wasn't one of those groups that you showed in the pie diagram, wasn't that Buddhists? And don't they not accept uh, God? Well, it's complicated. <laughs> uh, huh? Yeah, there's nirvana, yeah. So um, that's another discussion. Uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur says there's differences in conceptions of God. So you can say, yeah, the Buddhists have a conception of God. What is that? Well, there is none. <laughs> there is no personal uh, divinity, uh, they might say. It's hard to say. There's so many different Buddhist traditions. Um, fifth, di difference in the name and statements of God because of variation in languages. Okay, so he's saying just look at the differences in language. Um, how many different languages are there in the world? They estimate, what is it, 6,000? 6,000. I think some, uh, somehow that number's in my mind. There's a lot of languages. 
ever since the Tower of Babel fell down. <laughs> right, so there are differences. This is what he's saying. But now, look at this, and please um, be patient. This is a longer quote from Bhaktivinoda Thakur. Again, it's from the Shikshamrita, uh, Chaitanya Shikshamrita. Because of the above five differences, it is only natural that the various religions will appear quite different. Yeah, it's natural. However, he says, it is improper and detrimental, detrimental means not good, not healthy, uh, to argue over these differences. That it's not going to help to argue over differences. If one goes to another place of worship, one should think. So now he's giving a suggestion. What if you go into a church or a mosque or a whatever, a place of worship, um, and you see things going on there? He says, here's how you can think. The people here are worshiping my Lord, but in a different way. Because of my different training, I cannot properly comprehend this system of worship. However, through this experience, I can deepen my appreciation for my own system of worship. The Lord is only one, not two. Therefore, I offer respect to the form I see here and pray to the Lord in this new form that he may increase my love for him in the form to which I am accustomed. So he's not saying, you know, you're going to walk into somebody else's uh, worship service and have a transformation where you sign up, you join their church or whatever. Well, that could happen too, I suppose. <laughs> um, saying, no, let it be an experience for deepening your own faith through the difference. See the difference, appreciate it, don't be threatened by it. Don't feel threatened. Does that make sense? That's from Bhaktivinoda Thakur. I didn't make it up. <laughs> okay. And here's a brief quote from Srila Prabhupada. He was speaking with one Christian priest, and he said, Now our appeal is to everyone, every religious sect, that people are becoming godless generally at the present moment. So we should make combined effort to revive their God consciousness. Now, when I hear this, I think, well, that's, that's pretty naive. You know the word naive? It's kind of like foolish, innocent, uh, wishful thinking. <laughs> but Prabhupada had... He had a very big vision, actually. He was, he was always thinking bigger. So when 
So this, this was a basis for Srila Prabhupada's idea of how dialogue might take place. Okay, you believe in God, I believe in God. Why don't we combine our efforts in some way that we can, uh, that we can bring God consciousness, revive God consciousness in the world? Okay, um, I just have two or three more slides. And then we'll see if you have any thoughts. <clears throat> the International Society for Krishna Consciousness has an official statement on interfaith dialogue. It has uh, five parts. Do you want to hear it? what it is, you may be surprised. You may be shocked at some of the things. <laughs> so this is the first statement. It's in three parts. In ISKCON, we view all communities and philosophies advocating and practicing love for God and founded on revealed scriptures as representative of the <coughs> ultimate religious expression. We also respect the spiritual worth of paths of genuine self-realization and search for the absolute truth in which the concept of a personal deity is not explicit. So this is being very inclusive. It's saying, look, even you don't talk about God in your faith, uh, we still appreciate you're pursuing something that's good. <laughs> We're happy about that. Other communities and organizations advocating humanitarian, ethical, and moral standards are also valued as being beneficial to society. We value. It's not something to be unhappy about. So that was the first statement. The second one is shorter. <clears throat> ISKCON views dialogue between its members and people of other faiths as an opportunity to listen to others. What? Listen to others? Are you serious? <clears throat> and to understand what others believe and value to develop mutual understanding and mutual trust, and to share our commitment and faith with others. See the word share. While respecting their commitment to their own faith. Wait a minute, I thought we're a mission and our business is going out and preaching and distributing books of Srila Prabhupada, and everyone should just read these books and forget about whatever they think. Uh, well, <laughs> hmm, I think we have to think a little more deeply about our mission. Third point, ISKCON recognizes, uh-oh, this is going to be a surprise, 
Iskan recognizes that no one religion can hold a monopoly on the truth, the revelation of God or a relationship with God. We assert that the Lord in his individual relationships with his devotees governs these things. It's between individuals and the Lord, ultimately. It's not about this religion, that religion, that institution, this institution. The fourth, ISKCON's members are encouraged to be respectful and supportive of people of faith from other traditions and to see the need for people of different faiths to work together for the benefit of society as a whole and for the glorification of God. Hmm. Yeah. So, Trinata Bisuni Chena Tarori Vasahishana Amanina Manadena Kirtaniya Sadahari. That's being respectful. And finally, Iskan affirms the responsibility of each individual to develop his or her relationship with the Supreme Lord. And that's it. That's the whole statement. Uh, this is uh, being republished with some elaborations. It's coming in a, in a small book or booklet. Um, which I believe also, I hope, it's also going to include responses to our interface statement by um, theologians and um, representatives of other faith traditions, what they say about this statement. So this is pretty much what I wanted to... Um, present. This is again showing, <laughs> I like this painting. Uh, I think it gives a nice uh, representation of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu speaking with the Kazi. Um, and it, it, it looks like a nice interfaith dialogue going on. <laughs> okay, so we have been through a bit of a a very short introduction. Um, and uh, my suggestion is we think about ways to cross bridges to connect with people. Um, we're all, all of us in this, yeah, especially these last few days, it's been very rainy. So we think a lot about water and flooding and so on. Uh, and that might remind us of Nityananda Prabhu, who flooded the world with love of God, going to every, uh, to every door. Proti gore gore gya koro e bika, balo krishna, bajo krishna, koro krishna, sika. He requested everyone to chant Hare Krishna, and that's wonderful. We want everyone to chant Hare Krishna. But... Um, people might want to also talk about it. <laughs> and how do we talk? Well, there's lots and lots and lots of different ways 
And the general term, what we might find useful is the idea of dialogue. Dialogue can happen in very informal ways. It can happen in very formal ways and everything in between. It can be very individual or it can be very public. Um, it can be that you are representing an institution or it can be that you're just uh, speaking for yourself. Um, there are many, many different ways it's a big subject, so I think that's what I wanted to say for now. And let's see if you have any thoughts on this, this very short introduction. <laughs> hey, Mangi Gopi, I thought you would have something to say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for this wonderful topic. I remember I attended your seminar in Mayapur five years ago. <laughs> this really was all... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, it's a wonderful reminder. And I just uh, want to, assert, you mentioned that uh, issue might be to develop the culture and not have a culture of a dialogue. So that indicates that actually dialogue is a process, it's a not state, but it's a process we need to uh, keep on developing this thing. Mm, yeah. So it's wonderful. And I'm just thinking in a relation uh, related to um, our um our community is one community. Sometimes we have some issues, like some social issues, and we are concerned for the social well-being of our institution. But we didn't develop this culture, how to communicate these concerns. Yeah. So what could be your advice how to do it in order to uh, somehow uh, resolve the situation in a constructive way? <laughs> yeah. How about instead of talking about interfaith dialogue, talking about intra-faith? <laughs> what about within and amongst ourselves? Well, I guess the starting point can be the old saying that we have one mouth and we have two ears, right? So uh, developing our capacity to listen um, instead of Instead of thinking, what am I going to say next while the other person is talking? <laughs> because what am I doing? I'm using my uh, animal tendency of being defensive more than anything, right? What do animals do and humans have in common? Eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. So... One way that we defend ourselves is with our words. And how we um, prepare our words when someone else is speaking um, makes it so that we're not really listening to what they're saying. Um, and that can go into a kind of spiral of uh, a downward spiral, spiral of no communication. I think a, f a first point is to have enough sense of confidence, not in your particular opinion about something, but rather confidence that the right thing can be, uh, the right understanding or a good understanding, an illuminating understanding is available. It's there somewhere. 
And I might have part of that, but the person I'm feeling in opposition to might also have part of that. So it comes back to this, um, this nice quote, uh, a way of taking the dialogue as a way of taking the energy of our differences and channeling it towards something that has never been created before. Now that, that involves some imagination, some creativity, some, some, as we say, thinking outside the box. And the, usually the way we build the box when we see there's two opinions is that we, we assume that there's only two options. And so we bash our heads against each other <laughs> because there's only these two options. Maybe there's more than two options. Maybe there's a third option. Maybe there's a gray area. And also, maybe there is need for patience. We always want everything to be settled right now. Um, is it possible that we don't have a conclusion and that's okay? <laughs> we're, we're working on it. We're thinking about it. And we are praying because, uh, because you guessed it, we want uh, to be illuminated by uh, the Lord. And therefore we, we pray for illumination. Something I remember from reading many years ago, a psychologist, I've probably mentioned this here, um, who identified four stages of community, of spiritual community, four stages. First stage, Everyone comes together and everyone is smiling and happy and, and uh, hugging each other and everything is nice. Second stage, we start to notice the differences. And the differences are not going away. They're getting bigger. <laughs> and it starts to make for some more maybe awkward conversations and maybe, maybe some even arguments and so on. And it may come to some real, real tension. This second stage is the stage where a spiritual community, if it doesn't have the faith to go to the third stage, it will collapse. It has to collapse. Why? Because there's so many differences. But if there's faith, at least some faith, then it can go to the third stage. And the third stage is where the members agree to let go and say, we don't know. And he didn't use the term paramatma, but we can say that's the stage where we open ourselves to Paramatma. Uh, and then, if we can get to that stage, then that can bring us to the fourth stage, which is 
genuine community. So the first stage is superficial community. It's it's a beginning. It some has to start somewhere, um, but. Um, I think it helps just to be aware of um, of that dynamic that, oh, actually, here we are now. <laughs> Let's see if we can get beyond stage two. <laughs> yeah. Patience, some patience is needed. Patience and... Uh, and faith, faith that there is a way of coming to understanding. There can also be, I guess, one more point is, um, can we have, to, to always hold this question, um, can we have a unity in diversity? Srila Prabhupada famously used that phrase in one letter. I remember once uh, we we had this exercise, we had a sangha in Mayapur of the sannyasis and the GVC members and so on. Um, and uh, the, the facilitator had us read this letter from Srila Prabhupada and read it again and again and again, where Prabhupada is speaking about unity and diversity. So uh, the point here being, maybe we only see, we see difference. We see someone says this and someone else says that. Is there space for both of us? Maybe there is. Can we see the bigger space in which, you know, we can coexist? Um, at least we can meet once a year for Ratayatra. <laughs> Yeah. Is that okay? Thank you so much. But speaking about the differences, there is a wonderful book. It's written from a Protestant priest. His name is John Paul Lederach, and it's called Moral Imagination. Mm. It's really wonderful and helpful how, how we can use imagination to connect deeper with our um, unity and then rise above diversity in a positive mm. way. It's yeah, wonderful, really nice. wonderful. Moral Imagination. Yeah, this is this is really the the thing. Okay. Yes. Yes. Thank you, dear master, for a wonderful lecture. I don't know what is a folk religion. Can you give me just a sentence on this? And my real question is, how to present Hare Krishna movement to our friends and loved ones in a true choice way? Thank you. How to present where? Hare Krishna movement to our friends and loved ones in oh. true choice way. In true choice. True choice. True choice. True. Right choice. True. 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 Uh, okay. Folk religion, well, um, yeah, scholars would speak about indigenous religions. So there's, uh, for example, the indigenous peoples of uh, the Americas, North America, South America. They have their religious traditions. Peoples of, 
well, all over the world. <laughs> there are the so-called aborigines of uh, Australia. There are African, probably hundreds of different African folk traditions. Um, uh, Inuit, that is so-called Eskimo, all over the world. There's different... Generally, okay, maybe a common term for all of these would be they're generally not in written form. They're, um, they're communicated orally. I think that would be a, a kind of common denominator. And how to communicate with uh, friends and family and in a, in a good way? Well, yeah, first thing I would say is be patient and uh, don't over, don't try to, we say in English, don't be in your face. How would you say that in Slovenian? In your face, literally it's like somebody comes up and they're talking to you from, you know, this far away and they're shouting at you. <laughs> Don't be like that. <laughs> no, um, be patient, uh, give in small, small doses, small doses, uh, dosage, you know the word dose, it's uh, like a medicine. So we give uh, a little something. And with humility, in other words, not that now I know everything and you know nothing, because nobody likes to feel that way. Um, but I've just learned something. I've just heard something. Let me, sh I want to share it with you. I'm not sure I understand it myself, but here's how I understand it. You see what I'm saying? So you, you give it in, in that way. Um, what else can I say? Give them some prasadam. <laughs> it's quite magical. Uh, so many stories of prasadam, the magic of prasadam. We all have stories of magic of prasadam. Yes? So, is that okay? Okay. <laughs> yes, then Anjai Prabhupada. I have a question regarding Bhakti Thakur because he, he, is, he was the pioneer of today's topics mm -hmm. and he wrote and sent the book, first Vaishnava book, to the intellectuals of England. So I'm sure you read the book and can we learn from this book what, what is, how he described actually Vaishnavism to the... He started these topics with uh, London, I mean, English. Yeah, he Smetana. said... He, um, the question is about Bhaktivinoda Thakur's engagement with the West. Uh, Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur was a very prolific writer. He wrote many books, but actually the book that he sent to the West, the first one... He, he sent a handful, I guess also one to, to London, University of London, I'm not sure, but uh, I think he sent one. 
He sent one to uh, a, a famous um, intellectual in America, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the book that he sent was a book in Sanskrit. <laughs> Did Bhaktivinoda actually expect him to be able to read Sanskrit? We don't know, but uh, somehow he, he, he made this gesture. Um, and I think he sent one to one university in Montreal. Um, and someone, someone's, yeah, Rade Govinda has been researching this. He, he's been digging around about just exactly where uh, these books landed and on and on. But you're asking about the effect of those books. I don't think we can say that there was any immediate visible effect. Um, there may have been some polite, you know, gratitude, thank you for sending the book. Uh, but at the time, in that circumstance, who is Bhakti, you know, Kedarnath Dat Bhaktivinoda, who is this? He was not famous, uh, so, but in his humble way, he thought, anyway, let us uh, give this knowledge. Who knows how it will catch? Yeah, that was uh, Bhaktivinoda's enthusiasm. He had such enthusiasm to uh, share Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teachings. But he also had this sense of wanting to communicate, to dialogue, not just to um, make it a one-way road, so to say. As I said, he himself was reading extensively um, Western religious literature. And um, some of that, you can say, filters into his own writings in certain ways. But a lot of that was when he was younger. So when in his, old, uh, in his later years from nine, uh, 18, yeah, certainly from 1893, uh, which ironically is the year uh, the, uh, the uh, world um, uh, what is it? The World Parliament of Religions in Chicago happened in 1893, um, which is marked as kind of the beginning of the modern age of formal dialogue, interreligious dialogue. Um, anyway, in that year, Bhaktivinoda Thakur was organizing his... Um, he was doing two things. He was organizing Namhatta all over Bengal. It said that he made 500 different Namhatta groups in three years. Hare Krishna. <laughs> um, and simultaneously, he was writing songs. So many of his songs come from that time. Uh, his Bengali songs, because he wanted the 
people who were coming to these Namhata group meetings, what should they do? They should sing these songs. And these songs are didactic. They're teaching the philosophy, the theology of Krishna Bhakti. Yeah. Um, Bhakti Vinod was also speaking with uh, the um, mm, so-called Bhadraloka. These were the educated Bengalis who could uh, read and speak English. They were educated in, by English schools and so on. And they were becoming, uh, they were many of them following the so-called Brahmo Samaj. And the Brahmo Samaj started in the early 19th century, was rejecting the Srimad Bhagavatam and rejecting all the Puranas and rejecting deity worship and saying all that matters is the Upanishads. <laughs> and the Upanishads are all about Brahman. Okay. Uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur was asked by them to join him, uh, to join them. Uh, and he said, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> because he had just received a copy of the Srimad Bhagavatam and uh, a copy of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. And he was so excited by what he read. And therefore, uh, he was invited to give a speech to these Bhadralok people in Dinajpur. So he gave a speech in which he, uh, he says, come on, don't throw the Bhagavatam out like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. He doesn't use that expression, but that's basically his message. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> there is so much value in the Bhagavatam. You just have to be more serious to read it properly. And then he wrote that speech as a booklet, and that booklet is available in English. It's called The Bhagavata. It's philosophy, uh, ethics, and theology. Very fascinating book. Yeah. Hare Krishna. On that note, maybe we should end. Someone else has a question? Good. Yeah. Hare Krishna. Thank you for your kind patience in listening. And I'm sorry I'm not speaking Slovenian. That'll be next life. His Holiness Krishna Kshetra Swamiki. Yeah. Yeah.